1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today I'm speaking with Richard Drake about his study of the 20th century American historian Charles Austin Beard, entitled Charles Austin Beard, The Return to the Master Historian of American Imperialism. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you on, our, on, on the network. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, um, I teach uh, history at the University of Montana. I've been here since 1982. Uh, I teach, uh, I was trained as a Europeanist, but I've added uh, American foreign policy as a research area uh, in the, the writing that I do. And um, so I teach a range of courses, both European and American history courses. I have an active uh, research agenda, the most recent work being Charles Beer, but I've also written extensively about Italian history, modern Italian history, uh, with a special emphasis on the history of uh, contemporary terrorism in that country. Uh, but my, most, my two most recent books, uh, have dealt with uh, uh, Robert La Follette, uh, the education of an anti-imperialist, which came out in 2013, and now most recently, uh, the book you've just
1: introduced about Charles Beard. You describe uh, a some. You describe a little bit your uh, intellectual journey uh, that that brought you to the book uh, in, in the beginning of it. And I thought it was very fascinating. As you've already described, you, you're, you you started out as a Europeanist. What was it that yeah. exactly led you to Beard as a subject? Was it uh, through the La book, or do the origins lie uh, a bit earlier than that?
0: Well, I think the answer to your question is uh, that uh, the origins of my interest in the book do lie far in the past, in my own past. Uh, but also, more recently, uh, in the La Follette book, which appeared five years ago. And while doing research on that book, the La Follette book, um, I uh, discovered that he and Charles Beard had a very close political and intellectual relationship uh, in the years before world war one around the time beard was writing his classic and most famous book an economic interpretation of the constitution of the united states which appeared in nineteen thirteen uh... and so their relationship um, gave me an opportunity to learn more about beard and there's a, quite a bit about beard in that earlier book on La Follette. but as i was doing work on the La Follette Beard relationship. They were two iconic progressives. Uh, La Follette, the iconic progressive political leader. Beard, the iconic progressive historian of that early 20th century period. But I I reflected on my first encounter with Beard as a uh, as an undergraduate i was very much taken with an economic interpretation of the constitution of the united states i thought it extremely well done very perceptive in its judgments about the main themes in american history from that founding era in our country's uh beginnings uh but um, i when i went to graduate school my first turn in graduate school um, i discovered that uh, the courses I was taking then uh, really uh, took a dim view. The professors teaching those courses took a very dim view of, of Beard, and I was sort of warned off of him as an unreliable historian. I think that was his image uh, in the 1960s when I started out in graduate school. Um, and it was only later, uh, really through my work in Italy, I lived in Italy for a while, and studied at Italian universities as I made the transition uh, to European history, and uh, as I encountered some of the greatest of the Italian historians, people like Gaetano Mosca, Vilfredo Pareto, Roberto Michels these great realistic historians Italy produced in the late 19th century and early 20th century, I realized how close their perceptions were about the role of economics and the powerful role of economic elites, uh, in a political life, how close those ideas were to the ideas of beard. And so I sort of resumed taking an interest in him. And, um, and I guess it was the, uh, the experience of, Uh, working on the La Follette book encountering there his relationship with Beard that reminded me of what a deeply favorable impression Beard had made on me earlier in my life. And I decided to use the La Follette book as a springboard into the Beard book. And I think that's the best way to explain uh, the influences that uh, shaped my
1: work on uh, the Beard book. It's interesting in that uh, the book is very interesting in that it's not a standard cradle to grave biography. You're delving much more into Beard's ideas and another aspect of his life, which is his influence. And I And you begin by looking more specifically at the influences upon him. I was wondering if you could start off our examination of the book by talking a bit about Beard's intellectual growth, his uh, upbringing, and how he came to the ideas that he had when he started writing his you know, famous body of, 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 of work. Okay. Well, he, he was an Indiana farm boy, uh, born in
0: 1874 uh, in corn country in Indiana, and uh, he... Um, uh, went to DePauw University. He he was a did his undergraduate work there, and was able, uh, following his graduation, uh, to enter uh, the history program at Oxford University. His his father was a wealthy farmer and businessman, and was able to afford uh, the expense of sending his son to Oxford. And so, in 1898, Beard uh, went off to Oxford. And, and spent four years there really spending most of his time not in the classroom but rather uh founding uh, ruskin college which was a working men's uh college he was very very passionate about uh, uh, uh educational reform movements and this this would be a, a, a characteristic feature in his life throughout his career but but uh, he also made some very important contacts uh, at oxford i suppose the the thinker who influenced him the most uh was uh, john ruskin he was a very famous probably the most famous art historian in the world. But what drew Beard to him was an 1862 book that he wrote called Unto This Last. It's a work of social criticism from a culturally conservative uh, perspective. And this is one of the most interesting features of Beard's intellectual life, is that he starts out his career really, uh, under the influence of this cultural conservative thinker. Uh, I say it's ironic because Beard would become famous as a left-wing progressive historian, but there's always this this cultural conservative core at his thought that is imparted from Ruskin's work. Now, the way Beard makes uh, a, a, a a path for himself out of, political conservatism and uh, in in Ruskin's case there was kind of a shared political cultural emphasis in his work but beard encounters another englishman by the name of john atkinson hobson most famous today for a classic book that he wrote called uh, Imperialism a Study. It appeared in 1902. That was Beard's last year at Oxford. But this book made a profound impression on Beard. Uh, It helped him to understand the important role that economic elites play in the history of imperialism. But most significantly for Beard's intellectual growth at that time is that uh, uh, Hobson was a great admirer of Uh, uh, Ruskin, but he sought to adapt Ruskin's thought to progressive causes, working men's causes in a progressive way, uh, female, uh, the suffragette movement, uh, uh, anti-imperialist ideas. And so it's, it's Atkinson Hobson, John Atkinson Hobson, who really leads Beard, I think, into his mature... Uh, political views and thought. Uh, always, He always retained this core of cultural, conservative, traditional thinking about culture and thought and mores. Uh, he was never inclined toward Marxism, toward any revolutionary left-wing uh, uh, traditions. I think it was Ruskin who held him back from all that, and it was Hobson who was able to lead him in the direction of a more progressive interpretation of those traditionalist views. So those are the two main figures who helped to shape his outlook. I would add one other name Uh, And it would be that of Edwin R.A. Seligman, who was a professor at Columbia University, where Beard finally ended up getting his Ph.D. in 1904. He left Oxford in 1902, transferred to Columbia University, where he got his degree. And it was there where he met uh, Edwin uh, R.A. Seligman, uh, a professor who... Uh, is most famous for his economic interpretation of history, sort of a non-Marxist, even an anti-Marxist economic interpretation of history. And uh, Beard uh, also imbibed uh, ideas from that stream of thought, as well The Selig. So three names to think of in connection with the major intellectual influences uh, that shaped Beard's outlook. John Ruskin, John Atkinson Hobson and Edwin
1: R.A. Seligman. You've identified how Beard reached his ideas, but there's a next step that follows, which is how he goes from being uh, an academic who produces books to being this Public intellectual who engages with uh, major politicians, who uh, is I- involved in the discourse on contemporary events or current events. Right. How does that take place during this period?
0: Well, Beard, in addition to being a brilliant historian, was also an enormously influential public intellectual, which means that his influence reached far beyond the academy. It's interesting to note that the lifetime sales of Beard's books totaled over 12 million copies there's no historian I know of who can match that sales record it's an extraordinary achievement and I think it's it's a testament uh, to the enormous favor he gained in in the mainstream of society he was not only an enormously successful academic historian, he served as the president of the American Historical Association, of the American Political Science Association. That in itself was a rare double honor and a sign of the esteem in which he was held by scholars. But in addition to that, he, his influence extended into the mainstream of society into the, the, the marketplace, broadly conceit. And the book that really catapulted him to national fame, and even international fame, was a book I've, I've already mentioned, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. It appeared in 1913. It was uh, it, it was lionized in many quarters and served as a, as a sort of the textbook example of good critical progressive historiography. Beard really became the paramount progressive historian of that time, but it it it, it also um, uh, opened doors for him. Uh, writing for journals, writing for newspapers, uh, eventually, sort of in the next generation, uh, giving radio broadcasts, appearing before Congress as an expert witness. He was the most famous historian in the country. And I think it was that book, uh, An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, that really gave him his platform. And from then on, uh, he was able to make a huge difference in the political and intellectual life uh, of his time generally not just as an academic but as a public intellectual
1: you've already referenced his friendship with robert la Follette, and you describe in the book how when uh when uh, the economic interpretation of the constitution came out uh, La Follette made sure that it received uh, a favorable mention in his magazine. That you know, the Promised Review didn't uh, come out, but at least it was noted and it was praised right. and his eyes were steered towards it. And, and it, it, your, your point to a a, a a convergence of thought between the two men. And yet, in 1917, there is a divide. And, and Beard has a very interesting. Uh, course through the first world war that you uh, describe in 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 some detail how exactly does he respond to america's entry in world war one and why is that response so significant for his subsequent career
0: it's a hugely important moment in his life and in the life of the country america's intervention in the first world war which occurred in april of 1917 and you're right uh Beard and La Follette, who had been so close, uh, such allies, political allies, uh, in the years leading up to the First World War, really parted company over the issue of America's intervention in the First World War. La Follette took the lead in the U.S. Senate opposing American intervention, gave some famous speeches uh, in opposition to America's foreign policy in the First World War. Beard on the other hand from the very outset of the war took a strongly interventionist position now that that's the great question about his life and career really concerns why he took that interventionist position when it would in the context of what came before in his life and what came afterwards it's such an anomalous act that 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 uh, uh, that that he engaged in there, and he actually, uh, long after he abandoned uh, support of the interventionist policy and looked back on it as a great mistake, perhaps the greatest mistake of his career, he wrote about some of the motives that Uh, inspired him uh, to take that position. In in a famous book that he and his wife, his wife, Mary Ritterbeard, was a very important uh, historian in her own right and 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 uh, an outstanding, uh, very influential collaborator of his in a number of books that they wrote together. Probably the most famous one that they wrote together is The Rise of American Civilization, which appeared in 1927 first edition. And uh, it's in that book where it's almost in, in a confessional way. He talks about some of the reasons why he supported the uh, the interventionist movement. Uh, partly, it had to do, as he puts it, with his own English roots. I mean, his the Beard family on both sides of his family uh, had... Uh, 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 an English pedigree uh, going back many centuries. Uh, they, they were English immigrants coming to this country uh, in the 18th century. Uh, in addition to that, he had lived in England for four years as an Oxford student and as a the creator, one of the chief founders of Ruskin College, the Working Men's College I mentioned a moment ago. He made many contacts there, had many friends there. Uh, uh, in other words, they were there were ties that bound him to England, and he wanted to believe them. He wanted to believe that their cause was right, and he persuaded himself that his cause was right and He became totally committed to the British to the Allied cause and and criticized Woodrow Wilson for not getting the United States into that war sooner than he did. <laughs> yeah, it was only in April of one thousand nine hundred and seventeen that we entered. The war broke out in the summer of 1914. Why were we waiting so long? Beard kept asking. And so uh, I think those are the reasons why he embraced the Allied cause and the interventionist cause, which of course, as you know from having read the book, he later totally repudiated those positions. But he—he he, for about five years, he was an ardent interventionist. He worked for George Creel's propaganda office promoting the war. He wrote books, essays, articles promoting the cause uh, right through uh, 1919, which is when the scales began to drop from his eyes uh, and, and he uh, began to embrace the revisionist movement, which I know we'll be talking about when you get around to asking me a question about it.
1: Well- one of the things I thought was interesting about that uh, period of his life was that you described his this this uh, very enthusiastic commitment to the Allied cause, and yes. yet it's you, you also talk about the nuance in it that when two of his colleagues were accused of being pro-German, he, he didn't just yes. jump on the bandwagon and, and 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 champion their dismissal. He he stood up and fought for them. Absolutely, two of his famous colleagues
0: um, at, at at Columbia University who were ardent anti-interventionists, they were pacifists, uh, James McKean Cattell, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow Dana, very famous professors, particularly in the case of Cattell, who was a uh, very famous psychologist, uh, Henry Wadsworth, uh, 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 the, the Professor Dana, a um, uh, very uh, well-regarded literature professor, but they were both on the opposite sides of the war from Beard. Uh, they they opposed American intervention from a pacifistic standpoint. They were supporting La Follette at that point uh, in American politics. And even though they were on the opposite side from Beard, when the president of Columbia, who was an ardent interventionist, supporter of making the war safe for democracy, uh, uh, Nicholas Murray Butler, when he fired those two professors, beard up and quit. He resigned his job at, at, at Columbia on the grounds that, look, politics aside, freedom of speech, freedom of expression is the lifeblood of a university. If you terminate freedom of speech, if you fire people on the basis of their political viewpoints, you kill the university. I will not be part of this school, and I'm leaving. And he resigned on the spot in October of 1917. Even though he was on the side of the, the university president who fired those men politically, he was against him on moral and intellectual academic grounds. And, and this is a sign, I think, of what an independent thinker Beard was. And he had this reputation all of his life as a ruggedly independent thinker. And you could never really predict where he was going to go because he he based his judgments on, not on ideology, but on the facts as he understood them.
1: So you you already talked about how after 1919, the scales fall from his eyes. Was there a particular event or moment where it happened? Or was it more of a gradual evolution as the war receded into the distance?
0: I think the answer to that question is that it was gradual. He himself claimed uh, in The Rise of American Civilization, which is the second most famous book he ever wrote in a hugely successful survey of American history, he claimed in that book that it was in 1920 when he realized that he had been mistaken about the war. And he, he points out who was responsible for converting him away from the interventionist, making the world safer democracy, political foreign policy viewpoint? There were two names that he cited. One was John Atkinson Hobson, the same man who, be- before the war, had uh, had such an influence on him in that classic book, uh, Imperialism: A Study. But in 1920, um, Hobson wrote an article for the Political Science Quarterly on which Beard served as, as an editorial advisor. So I, I, I knew when I was writing my book that he had read this article by John Atkinson Hobson. Why the war had come as a surprise. It's a famous article, and it's the point of ignition for Beard's shift in political viewpoint about world about the great war as it was called the world war one was called then and 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 hobson just argues that look the problem with the 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 standard official allied interpretation of the war is that both sides were imperialistic both sides were really responsible for this war it wasn't germany's fault uh solely as Article Two Thirty One proclaimed, but imperialist motives generated policies on both sides of the Rhine, as uh, as, as, as 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 he put it. The other very important uh, writer who convinced Beard, who began the process of convincing Beard that uh, he had it had been a mistake. The United States to enter the First World War, that it really was not a war to promote democracy at all, that had nothing at all to do with the realities of that war. Uh, the war was about empire, it was about territories, markets, resources. And the, the, the author, the other author, another Englishman who inspired him to rethink his whole position about the First World War was Philip Gibbs, British journalist, brilliant writer the author of a book that appeared in 1920 called The Realities of War. It merits rereading today, I think. And Beard read it and I, I found this the same arguments even more fully developed than in the article by Hobson, which came out that same year, That that the war had been about empire, not about democracy. Democracy was the camouflage that the United States government's uh, produced to conceal what the realities of that war were, and uh, so I think that 's where it begins and those two authors hobson and um, uh, and Gibbs, along with many others i mean I, I, I mentioned them in the book, people like um, uh, uh, henry elmer uh, Harry Elmer Barnes. Uh, Max Monteligalas, a German writer. There are many, many other of these revisionist authors who form a what became known as the revisionist school, the revisionist interpretation of the First World War, the war being about empire, not about democracy, not about justice or freedom, or any of those buzzwords that were in the air uh, during uh, the First World War. The war was about empire, it was about a geopolitical positioning strategy, strategic positioning, uh, Beard becomes a very prominent part of the revisionist movement. But he becomes a prominent part of it very gradually. Uh, it, it took several years for him to embrace the revisionist viewpoint fully. But by the time he wrote uh, *The Rise of American Civilization*, uh, he was a total convert to the revisionist. school of thinking, and for the rest of his life, he uh, would believe that modern warfare fundamentally at bottom is always about economic motives uh, in the manner described by Gibbs and some of the other revisionist
1: uh, authors. How is this uh, reflected in some of the works that he is producing in the nineteen thirties? And to what extent are those books contributing to the broader debate that's taking place in the in the country about the origins of the war, America's involvement in the war, and then, of course, the you know looming uh, crisis that emerges in Europe over the course of the nineteen thirties?
0: The two main books by well so many important books that he wrote in the 1930s, but the two books that really deal with foreign policy uh, specifically in the 1930s are The Devil Theory of War, 1936, and Giddy Minds and Foreign Quarrels, 1939. And uh, by the mid-1930s, 1936, Beard feared that the United States would be drawn into war again. As war clouds began to gather over Europe uh, in the 1930s following Hitler's accession to power uh, in 1933, uh, Beard Beard sensed that war would be in the offing soon and that the United States would be drawn into it again. And so he begins to write uh, in opposition to that drift toward war a second time. The Devil Theory of War um, uh, is the first of these two books in the nineteen thirties, really based in large part uh on the Nye Committee reports. Uh nineteen thirty four to nineteen thirty six, the Nye Committee uh in Washington investigated uh the connections between the banking and financial community and America's decision to go to war in 1917. It's a very important set of documents that Beard mined, particularly for this book, The Devil Theory of War. And what he argues there is that what the Nye Committee has shown is that America went to war for these economic reasons primarily. And it will go to war again for economic reasons, primarily presenting other reasons as its true motives. But these will be, at most, subsidiary motives. The real reason will be promoting empire, promoting economic empire. That's 1936. In 1939, the year that the Second World War erupted, in fact, on September in September of 1939, the war began on September 1st that year, Beard published an article uh for Harper's magazine called Giddy Minds and Foreign Quarrels which later that year became a book a short book of his on American foreign policy and uh, he repeats these arguments the reason why uh that second book was so important is that the America first movement which which uh began in 1940 but uh the the America first movement In opposition to America's intervention in the Second World War, uh, there were over 800,000 members of America First. There were more than 400 chapters of this organization. Beard never belonged to it, but he was their premier historian. His name and his books appear on all their recommended reading lists, usually at the top of their recommended reading lists, and Giddy Minds in Foreign Quarrels. Uh, was at the very top of that list. And what he argues in that book is that classically, throughout history, going back to the earliest historical records, the very first historians, really beginning with Herodotus and Thucydides and coming all the way through to the present, they all have talked about how governments in difficulty, governments facing problems at home, often turn to foreign affairs as a distraction from those problems at home. Now what Beard argued in that 1939 book is that FDR's New Deal has failed. The New Deal did not solve the problems of the Depression. In fact, in 1937-1938 there was a resurgence of economic crisis in this country. Uh, uh the unemployment numbers were spiking and other negative economic indica- indicators revealed how ineffective the new deal had been in solving the economic problems of the united states beard thought that uh it really only was with the uh, uh the the the, the, the on- onset of the second world war and incoming war orders from europe that enabled the United States economy to begin to overcome the ill effects of the depression. It wasn't the New Deal, it was the Second World War that ended the depression. And Beard feared that this was going to become, for the United States, the permanent solution to the country's economic problems. Permanent war, a permanent war economy. Uh, uh, And this was his great fear for the United States. He thought that this was the existential crisis that America faced, to be on a permanent war, uh, uh, war status, war footing, permanent war economy, and all of this was going to be resulting from our intervention in the Second World War. All of these problems were going to be, uh, have the, the effect of disfiguring the American republic and turning it into an American Empire, and, and and this is how he um, uh, uh, assessed the main political and economic trends of the 1930s. Those two books are very important by him: The Devil Theory of War, and Giddy Minds and Foreign Quarrels. That last title is from a line from Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth, Part Two, when Henry the Fourth counsels his son, the future Henry the uh, uh, to uh, uh, distract uh, his political adversaries with foreign quarrels, they take their minds off domestic issues, domestic problems. And, and Beard thought this was just a time-honored stratagem of leaders in difficulty at home. And he thought that uh, this, this same problem was the one that FDR was facing in the late 1930s.
1: Now, we've been talking about his views during the 1930s going into the war, and I think it's important to stress this point that we're not just talking about somebody who is writing books that don't have an audience. You've already mentioned that they're on the reading right. lists of the uh, of these various groups. Uh, you mentioned that his uh, the, the book he writes uh, in 1940, of Foreign Policy for America, it's uh, right. Gerald Nye cites it on the floor of, 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 yeah. of the United States Senate. So he's he's not just commenting on a debate, he's an active participant in it.
0: You know, what, what's so remarkable about Beer, or, or it was for me when I was doing research for the book to discover how many times he appeared as an expert witness in congressional hearings, both for the Senate and the House. Um, how many times, dozens of times, his articles and books were cited in the congressional record. I, it, it's just extraordinary uh, to realize. Uh, what his power was, what his influence was, and particularly for senators like uh, Burton K. Wheeler uh, of Montana, uh, who who was uh, 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 a powerful anti-interventionist, Gerald P. Nye, uh, you've already mentioned him, um, uh, was another one, constantly citing Beard's ideas, Beard's work, bringing him to Congress to speak uh, to the leaders. Uh, about his views concerning uh, foreign uh, foreign uh, affairs. So his reach was um, uh, very great in American political life. And it, as you just mentioned, also, uh, in, in, in terms of how many people were reading him, how many people were were following his arguments. He had this reputation of being the truth teller. He was the truth teller. A- and you have to realize that in the Depression era, Uh, uh, when the American economy had cracked up and uh, the American economic establishment was in low standing in terms of its prestige and the honor uh, in which it was held, uh, uh, the American people were looking for truth-tellers, and Beard, among the historians, was the greatest of them all. And so whenever a book of his appeared, it it automatically sold extremely well, many of them becoming bestsellers um, uh, books that today, when you go back and read, for example, *The Rise of American Civilization*, which came out in a second edition in the 1930s in the Depression era, a much uh, an amplified edition. But when you read that book, it's 1,700 pages long. People were reading these; they didn't have television or the internet. I mean, they had to read more. I think in those days, and they read Beard and they revered him. Uh, his his standing was um uh, uh, really at, at 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 an extraordinarily high point all through these Depression era years especially uh, leading into the Second World War but then of course as you know everything changed.
1: So what did change uh for Beard after Pearl Harbor and also perhaps more importantly what didn't change for him? Okay. Let's start with what didn't change.
0: Um after Pearl Harbor uh... his reaction to the second world war uh, was somewhat complex uh, uh... in his private letters and by the way he and his wife burned all of their personal papers so much of his correspondence just just isn't available to us but but uh, letters that he wrote to people have survived in various collections and we know from those letters uh, and from articles that he was writing, and even from some of the books that he was writing during the war years, he, he continued to have a critical view of American foreign policy. Uh, he, he continued to think that, yes, he, Hitler is as evil as his worst enemies say that he is. Beard has no doubt about that. He detested fascism, he hated Nazism, he wrote very censoriously about Hitler, Mussolini, Tojo. There's no, no brief for any of them. But he clings to this idea that World War I and World War II are really one war with a 20-year armistice in between. They're both about the same thing. They're both about imperialism. They're both about who is going to get to rule the poor at the end of the conflict. He, he, he clings to this viewpoint that he obtained from the revisionist school in the immediate aftermath of the First World War. He clings to that. But he doesn't write vociferously about this. I think for a couple of reasons. One, he has a son, his son William, who was fighting in Europe in the Second World War. So this this I think had a Dampening effect on any inclination that he might have to voice his views with his customary directness and firmness and aggressiveness. Um, uh, 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 also, he he came to see uh, the the reason to defeat Hitler. He he does accept that as a legitimate war aim, but he always senses that that's not the real war aim. He he argues that with FDR claiming uh, in famous speeches and famous documents that the Second World War is about the four freedoms, Beard says I I don't think that's what the war is about. Look who our primary military ally is. It's Joseph Stalin, the worst mass murderer in history, the greatest dictator uh, the, the worst dictator in the world, much worse as a mass murderer as of December 7, 1941, than Hitler was. The Holocaust did not get underway until the Vance Conference of January 1942. And so Beard says, I just don't think that the war is about freedom. You can't claim feasibly that the war is about freedom when your principal ally is Joseph Stalin. The war has to be about something else. I think that something else really has to do with the standard reason why nations go to war, why they certainly went to war in World War I, and why they're going out to war again. The British and the French trying to hold on to their ill-gotten gains from the Treaty of Versailles, the Germans trying to reach out for Lebensraum uh, against, uh, in Eastern, Central and Eastern Europe. It, it, it's about empire again. We Americans do not want to become involved in that, because to become involved in that is to touch pitch, and we must not do that. Uh, the American Republic will be besmirched by this war. The consequences of this war are going to be horrendous, and we must stay out of it. Now, as I say, all of that is, is, is presented in a very subdued way, and more more openly in letters less openly in what he was publishing at this time. But then once the war was over in 1946, uh, he begins to produce a series of two books uh, in which he will speak his true mind fully. And that is when I think his reputation as a historian took a terrific hit from which it has not recovered until this day.
1: I thought it was especially fascinating how, during the war, he uh formulates a a, a connection with herbert hoover and oh absolutely you, and you go into uh you know herbert hoover's own uh, positions on the war and and of course his uh his 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 uh, unpublished book, but it was interesting about how you know Hoover approaches it initially. They, they seem to be, uh, it, it politically uh, very various because, as you explained, Beard still remains true to his uh, you know progressive views domestically. But Hoover finds that that he and Beard share very common ground when it comes to this question of uh, Roosevelt's handling of the war, the origins behind the war, and and they have this very interesting. Uh, uh, I don't want to. Would you say go so far as to say friendship, or maybe just an association that that continues on uh, through the rest of Beard's life? I, I think it was a friendship,
0: and 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 in, in in a very close one in in some important ways. I mean, uh, uh, Hoover trusted him uh, with very important documents that uh, he furnished to Beard uh, re- regarding the war and regarding uh, his own. Uh, Hoover's own understanding of the war and why Hoover strongly opposed American intervention in that conflict on the grounds that uh, uh, Stalin was every bit as evil as Hitler, if not more so. Uh, and, and, and what we were doing, fighting a war with Joseph Stalin, could in no way be presented uh, in, in any kind of realistic way, anyway, uh, as, as a war for freedom. It really was a war for our reasons, uh, 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 as, as Hoover understood it. So yes, they formulated uh, a, 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 a similar views about the Second World War. They were uh, steadfast allies in the post-war period. Beard was constantly encouraging him to uh, to complete his memoir. Hoover's memoir of the war, which Hoover never did in his in his lifetime, the book was published posthumously. "A uh, Betrayal of Freedom" is the title of it. That title it tells you all you need to know about his interpretation of the Second World War and Roosevelt's role in it. Um, um, uh, uh, Beard, of course, published his books. Uh, the two big ones that he published um, were um uh American Foreign Policy in the Making nineteen thirty two to nineteen forty and President Roosevelt in the coming of the war nineteen forty one with this uh uh marvelous subtitle, A Study in Appearances and Realities, uh in which he tried to show how uh and and, and Hoover uh who was in a correspondence with Beard, as Beard was writing these books uh, uh, strongly encouraged him in this interpretation of American foreign policy in the Second World War, that that uh, that, that, uh, that, that that the war really had been fought for uh, reasons that had not been announced by the government. The government was talking about four freedoms; they really were talking about protecting corporate capitalism worldwide. Uh, uh, in ways that Beard thought would be the undoing of the country. That that this really was the outcome of the Second World War for Beard. That uh, uh, at the end of it, uh, the United States was the world's really only real superpower. Um, The Soviet Union was a superpower of, of of a secondary rank certainly in economic terms the united states was the dominant nation on earth and the dominance would be expressed By the expansion of the American military presence worldwide, that hundreds of military, eventually some 800 military bases would be established. Why? Uh, Beard was asking in uh, 1946, 1947, 1948. He died in 1948, but he already could see the trend that the Cold War was taking, that the United States would be on permanent planetary guard duty. Hard duty for what? To supervise, to defend, to augment uh, the corporate capitalist structure, which in Beard's view meant that the United States, that the American people would forevermore be on war alert. They would be permanent war for permanent peace. That's a famous saying associated with Beard's name. But this would be the principal outcome not only of the Second World War, but the principal outcome of American life forevermore. And of course, right down to 2019, we can see how prophetic a historian Beard was. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to alert the American people that in Charles Austin Beard, they have, a, in, in the work of Charles Austin Beard, they have a resource that will enable them to understand how the united states reached the point where it now finds itself in the world permanent war for permanent peace constant terrorism constant revolution constant warfare and and, and this has become the fate of the american people Beard worried about this in 1946, 47, 48, and prophesied that this would be our destiny. And we, and, and we would have to try to pull back from that. And I think his work is a call. It's an inspiration
1: for us to do just that. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, I'm working on a
0: couple of things. I've taken a, a great interest in a poet... Uh, by the name of uh, Robinson Jeffers, uh, uh, who uh, the same year that uh, uh, that that Beard wrote um, uh, President Roosevelt and the Coming of the War, 1941, that same year, uh, Jeffers wrote a, a famous anti-war poem called The Double Axe, which I have described in uh, a paper I gave not long ago at the... Uh, uh, Robinson Jeffers Association Conference, which is held annually in Carmel, California. Uh, uh, this is Beardianism set to the music of poetry. Uh, so I have a lot of interest in him, and I'm writing some articles about him, uh, one of which will be appearing shortly in Jeffers Studies. Uh, another project, the other project I'll mention here very briefly, is work I've done for many years on Mark Twain as a critic of American Empire. I've done quite a bit of research in the Twain papers uh, at Berkeley, California. All the papers are housed there magnificently. It's a wonderful collection. I've made a couple of research trips there and I'm in the process of gathering my thoughts for a book about him. That would be really part of a trilogy that I have in mind of books about American critics of America of uh, of of the country's imperialism. Robert Lafollette. Charles Austin Beard, and then finally, Mark Twain.
1: Uh, Well, it sounds like you have uh, quite a full plate of research there. (laughs) We never stop. (laughs) Well, uh, Richard Drake, thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Mark.